The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day and welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, Dean of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and starting this summer, Kern County College of Law, and I am joined as always by my co-host, Stephen Wagner, law professor and prosecutor extraordinaire. Good day, Stephen. Good day, Mitch. Thank you for the grand introduction, and I noted how easily the Kern County College of Law rolled off your tongue. That was very well done. You know, I wasn't sure we'd be able to get all three of them in and still have time for the show. But it looks that like good. <laughs> it looks like we might be able to to get that to work. So your 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 intro has more fonts than mine, but I can <laughs> live with it. <laughs> well, there's a couple of things we're going to talk about today, and I, and I know we have one main topic, but but before we get to it. I, I couldn't help but notice as I was looking through the news just you know, yesterday and today that a couple of the topics that we have had before are back front and center in the news. Did you catch the article about Airbnb and short-term rentals negotiating I, a deal with New York City? I did, and I had one more surprise I was going to try to introduce also, but I'll, I'll let you go with Airbnb first, because I have one that relates to drones, believe you or not. Oh, uh-oh, I've got, I've got that one here as well. We'll see if we you, have the same uh, one. We, we may, maybe, maybe not, but I knew we were both on drone watch. Can't pass up a drone story. Right. <laughs> so I was just, you know, we've talked about Airbnb and other short-term rentals and the fact that the whole barter economy was, you know, is not going away, and we've had guests on the show and we've talked about the different laws and the the conflicts of the laws and and the issues related to regulating them and safety and uh, it's the same thing with with Uber and Lyft and and the car uh, biz, the car travel business where individuals are becoming their own business people and and I, I don't have a particular pro or con on Airbnb settling with New York but I think this just goes to prove what we had talked about before, which is we're going to continue to see cases like this as the business practice catches up and overtakes existing law, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's right, Mitch. And we've talked about it before within the context of how nice it is to see competition out there in the marketplace. And I think it was pretty easy for us to forecast that with that brings potential complications and 
very often gap areas in the law and regulations that come crashing down on on uh, the business people. So that's all very predictable, I think. And I thought the the one thing about the Airbnb lawsuit, and I, and again, I haven't read the the suit itself, but but the issue that really caught my eye, and and again, goes right into what you were just saying, is the question was if there's a violation of the local law or ordinance who would be at risk airbnb as the corporation or the individual landowner who is offering up their bedroom or their apartment or their extra unit for rent and so you know that there's a settlement on that in this case but i don't believe that's going to be settled in the law anytime soon yeah no that's right and it does introduce the uh the collision of many different municipal rules and laws and certainly contract law. Uh, there's a host of different legal issues involved, uh, for sure. I, I doubt that it's going to signal the demise of Airbnb or any other companies like that, but it will likely result in there being hopefully some more you know, set rules that will allow all the participants to understand what they're getting into when they engage in this kind of business activity. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I can't even imagine that the momentum of this type of business transaction is going to get reversed or stopped. Uh, it's it's popular. The marketplace wants it. I mean, we've talked about it before. I'm a free market economist. I believe the market ought to decide. On the other hand, as we did our show on on short term rentals. There, there is reasonable concern if you've got places that that don't have, uh, they don't have fire alarms, they don't have mono- carbon monoxide detectors, you, you, they may not be safe for children, uh, and and you have no way of knowing that. And the uh, the traditional, the traditional operators, hotels, and apartments all say we're regulated for that, and and these get the same thing with the cars. You know, they say that with with some of these lift uh, uh, short ride operations like Lyft and and Uber. How do you know if the driver is, is licensed? How do you know if they have insurance? How do you know if the car has passed a safety inspector? So, I mean, I really do see this is going to be yeah. an interesting tension back and forth between, you know, the need for safety and yet the, the right to let the economy dictate what it wants. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And it started when we talked about it. I think we referenced the local scenario. I think it was at Carmel by the Sea or... It was in Big Sur, the whole Big Big Sur Sur. area that there was... And it's not resolved by any means. They're still trying to decide which which side uh, the local ordinances are going to come down on. And I think uh, the lash out there was from from homeowners that had kind of a not-in-my-backyard stance or position, right? That's right. Uh, my son lives in the Palo Alto, San Francisco area, and you know, one of the discussions coming up there is that the, the concern is in an area that already is short of permanent housing, so apartments, that every time, right. every time you take one of these units and turn it into a short-term rental, so overnight or three days or weekends, you take an one more unit out of the housing pool that is already desperately short. So you have a, a, a facility owner who says, yeah, but what if I can make twice as much or three times as much renting it by the day versus renting it by the month? I own it. I ought to be able to do what I want. On the other hand, 
in the big picture of the economy, I get it. It 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 has an effect. It's it's one more unit that you can't have a a local worker have so that they can have a job and work in the city. So that, I, that's right. It's That's uh, right. Uh, we'll have to. We clearly are going to have to bring this back as its own topic in a in a fairly short order. Well, uh, well, Mitch, the let me get drones. Okay, in. go I, ahead. I'm, Which I'm drone probably, story do you yeah, have? I, I'm probably stepping on your line. I don't know. 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 Let's see. Well, I'm I'm actually on the topic of drone jacking. Oh uh, no, that's like, not what I had. Go pray tell. What's okay, up with so, drone okay, jacking? So so I I uh, bookmarked a website so that I could track cybersecurity once we started taking on the drone topic. Right. And it was at a time when I realized that it just kept coming back into the cycle, and we both predicted that we'd be talking about it for a while. And especially now, of course, it's now holiday slash Christmas season, right? It seems funny that we all, you and I both seem to get focused on drones right about the holidays. Yeah, well, that... Do you well, think we're sending a message out there to maybe if somebody's listening? <laughs> yeah, right. well, I, drones, drones, drones. Gosh, I don't have a drone. Do you have a drone? <laughs> Frankly, I'm surprised you're not a drone owner yet. I, but, I, I, I'm kind of surprised too, to be tell you the truth. So, so here's what Go I ahead. was tracking, and I and I saw a couple stories that I think hit national news, and it was the issue of, uh, well, two two things. One was that there's a phenomena of drone jacking. Okay, so we've, we've heard of carjacking, and most of our listeners have probably heard of the crime of carjacking, which is really robbery, usually a very forceful type crime, and it's a takeover on the owner or operator of a vehicle. So it's vehicle theft connected with people actually nearby the vehicle. Well, now it seems that there's a hybrid or potential hybrid crime on the horizon called drone jacking loosely. And this is the ability of, I assume, other hobbyists that can develop ways of hijacking a drone. And this came up in connection with drones being used to deliver, like UPS. Okay, all right. That. All right, now you, now you finally got around to where I could see. I was trying to visualize where they were going to yeah. snatch that well, drone and well, why. But now that makes good sense. Okay. Well, there was two incentives. One was just to get the drone out of somebody's property. I'll, I'll right. get back to that. Okay. But, but the one that was more alarming was this so-called act of commandeering the drone while the drone is actually delivering tangible goods to someone's home, which you know is now really well into the R&D stages. That's correct. The, you know, the ability of companies like UPS or FedEx or maybe smaller companies to actually utilize drones to deliver goods. We've even well, seen cocktails and pizza being delivered and yes, theoretically. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So so with that advent, it appears, has come a little criminal cottage industry potentially of finding a way to divert the drone, which is really a taking and to overtake or commandeer or slash hijack the drone. So there's stories out there, uh, mostly posted by some of the manufacturers of the drones, really in the form of warnings to watch out for so-called cyber criminals that have found ways to take over the drones. So I guess the, I, I, the issue is that there's a, probably a limited bandwidth that the radio, the, the, the 
connection between your controller and the drone itself is probably a fairly limited bandwidth, and to be able to find it and identify it with some kind of a, a sniffer of some type. It's obviously, I'm making these terms up. I don't yeah. know what they actually call them. And then I see that there's a live uh, one going on, and then you just tune in and take it over. Yeah, no, that's right. And then, you know, the other stories that were out there were, it, we, we've heard the stories of people that sh are shooting at drones when they go over their homes and all that. Um, there's been incidents where people have used a shotgun to try to take a drone out of the sure. sky and all those kind of problems. Well, now it appears that there's a more technical way to do it, which is to really overtake the controls of the drone in a way. And those are all over the news uh, on the on the cyber blogs. And uh, I just thought I'd share that okay. since we were Let's... so vested in the drone topic. And, of course, it's a legal talk show. And... Drone jacking would be a form of theft, potentially. So, yeah, no question about it. No different than yeah. if you you stole a package off the UPS truck stand, sitting yeah. at the end of the driveway. That's and, right. And I guess while you're on the topic, we might as well go ahead and throw out a, kind of the typical annual warning. I, I just saw a show on it, that, but it was an alert that people do have to start being careful because if you don't have UPS or FedEx or any other delivery service scheduling deliveries at a time that you know you're going to be there or somebody can get it. You know, most of the year they drop that package on your front door and everything is fine. But this is the time of year that the unscrupulous characters know this is going on. And there's evidently stories of folks who follow a FedEx truck and they run up the driveway, drop it, you know, knock, nobody comes, drop it at the front door, drive off to the next one. And that person just walks up, picks up the box and follows them, picks up the other one. So be yep. careful out there that that's, that's, a, that's going on. Alert. And, alert. It, and it would be really hard, unless you've got a camera on your door, doorstep, uh, it's going to be really hard to find that kind of a criminal because they're... You know, quick fleet, and you're just out of luck. So that yeah, would not that's be right. Good. That's so be right. before we take the break, I've got a totally separate drone story to throw out there. That this was uh, a story that Apple is talking about using drones to improve its mapping, and so that this was a commercial application because we talked about that the FAA had to get their act together and get these commercial regulations out of being able to use drones for a variety of reasons. And so now that those regulations are out, we see that Apple talking about using it in lieu of, you know, I guess Google sent cars around with cameras to map all the various streets and, and Apple's Apple maps are a little behind the game, considered to be less, uh, less valid, less accurate, and that instead of trying to to uh, in, instead of trying to use cars to do it, they're going to use drones. So there you have. Well, wow, that's good. That's good. <laughs> so that that would be worked potentially into their uh, their mapping system that end users use for directions. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. exactly right. That's to good, try yeah. to do that. Uh, so we actually did have a, you know, every once in a while we do get a message in for either, oh, we got a break. Hang on. I was, let's skip that message till afterwards. Don't go away. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Today we're talking about a variety of legal issues. Come back in just a few minutes.
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012, for more information. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, and I'm joined by Stephen Wagner. We were talking during our first segment of a variety of laws that have come back around that we've dealt with on prior on prior topics or prior shows. Uh, Stephen, I want to do one last one before we move on. It, it's probably no surprise to you that you know, the Wells Fargo case is now back in the news, and. Not very long ago, probably about, what, six, eight weeks ago, we had Daniel Lamb on our show, and he talked about these hidden clauses that are in many contracts, consumer contracts, that that essentially 
the consumer has signed away their right to sue and they're forced to go into arbitration. And most of us don't realize that those are in almost every credit card contract on every checking account. I mean, just vast number. And that has absolutely just come back out under this giant Wells Fargo case where they've allegedly opened up all of these fraudulent false accounts in people's names and charge them fees. Wells Fargo says it's going to try to make people whole, but there was an attempt to do a class action and those exact clauses that Daniel Lamb was talking about have come in front and center in that lawsuit. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, what they came up with in the context of a, a defense or what... No. Well, yes. Well, yes and no. Um, Wells Fargo is using it as a defense against certifying a class because as Daniel talked to us about uh, and during his program, that those clauses also say that they, they prohibit you from joining in on a class action, that you have to individually settle these cases in oh, arbitration. That's right. Okay. That's right. That's right. So there was language, there was anti-class action language or participation language. Exactly. And so I found this part of the story really interesting. The question is, if you're a client of Wells Fargo and you agree to that, but they open up an account that you never agreed to, do those same clauses bridge over to cover that other account that you never authorized? Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, that is. So, Interesting. So we'll have to, I think we may bring, have to bring Daniel back in as that case gets a little further into the, into the process. Yeah, that's a good one. So uh, you, you found some obscure constitutional provisions that you wanted to introduce. Is how, that right? can, how can anything in the Constitution be obscure? Come on. <laughs> it's all the Constitution. I say, <laughs> all I can say is I'm very glad that I was not tested on the emoluments clause, Article 1, Section 9. I, I do have to say that prior to this coming up in the, the, lo- the recent news, I didn't even know there was an emoluments clause in the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk about. It. I'm glad you found this one. Uh, it's a really it's a fascinating topic. So let's why don't we introduce it by trying to explain what it is? I guess that's a good place to start. So so first of all, it's it's called the Foreign Emoluments Clause, and as you just said, in Article One, Section Nine of the U.S. Constitution, and it says, and I quote. No person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States shall, without the consent of Congress, accept any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatsoever from any king, prince, or foreign state. So the idea is that if if you're holding an office of profit or trust, and generally speaking, that starts with the president, so everybody knows that's where this story is going. Well, let me me jump in first before (laughs) I say one other thing. Okay. We're soaking in irony here um, in that both Ms. Clinton and Donald Trump we're probably soaking in this issue. Absolutely. I agree right? with you 100%. I just wanted to get that out so it doesn't appear 
that we're trying to pull the welcome mat away from President-elect Trump, if uh, you don't mind. Because I, I would say that had this been brought up during the campaign, there were equal slings and arrows to be sent. But on this case, we only have one president-elect, so we're going to have to narrow the focus in because it doesn't apply to Ms. Clinton anymore because she is not a person holding a title I, of that, No, of that is true, Miss. but just <laughs> thanks for letting me get that out. I, the, 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 what I wanted to, to point out, though, is that part of our discussion, I think, is going to lead to an issue of why wasn't this brought out earlier, potentially, right? Or what, why wasn't it a front and center issue earlier because i sure don't recall it being raised when all of the claims about miss clinton's dealings with foreign entities and leaders was brought up and the same is true for trump during the actual election yeah and and you know the and the fo specific focus that i think is absolutely appropriate the balance is that you know we're gifts into the clinton foundation triggering this emoluments clause and so that's yeah so if you know to, to go to which part of the story we're we talking about it's that i mean that's the that was actually the right question that would have been asked had she won and could have been asked but wasn't as you pointed out during the the campaign but now we've elected a an individual this president-elect with worldwide business interests and the emoluments clause has been raised as to yeah. is it the pos is there a possibility and and we don't know what he's going what Trump is going to do with his international business interests yet he's said that on December fifteenth there'll be a press conference about it but regardless of what he does my guess is this is going to be a conversation that that continues on for a while so I thought it'd be great for us to explain what this clause is who it applies to, and how it may be argued in the coming months or years. Uh, so, so let's just break it down for just a minute. So it's who does it apply to? It really is anybody in a, in a governmental office. So it's office of profit or trust. So you know, that's, right. it's not just the president. That could be a governor. That could be a mayor. That could be a city council person. Uh, in this case, the the U.S. Constitution is, is referring to a federal officer, okay? So so there may be similar things in state constitutions. You'd have to look and see. But so, so the first definition is we're specifically talking about somebody with a federal position. And this could be ambassadors. This can be senators. This can be congressmen. But it particularly in, in this discussion applies to the president, vice president as well. Right. Yeah, no, so, that's good. So that's, that tells us why it's come up in the conversation. The, the other thing I think why it's come up is that we've now learned over the last week or two that, that the president and vice president are specifically not covered by other federal conflict of interest laws. So everybody else in their cabinet is going to be covered. Senators and congressmen are covered. But the president and vice president are specifically not covered. It's not that they're exempted per se. They're just not covered by other conflicts of interest that would come into play. So uh, the, their family might be covered. Uh, you know, Relatives, anybody they hire is going to be subject to other conflict of interest laws but not the president and vice president himself, right? So a, a strict reading of the provision does not address the president and the vice president? Not, not in the other 
conflict of interest federal laws that were initially being talked about, and then all of a sudden everyone realized, wait a minute, those don't count against the president, so what does regulate a president and vice president's behavior? It's been the narrative. That's kind of how we got to this yeah. story. And so right, right. all of a sudden, this never-before-litigated portion of the U.S. Constitution, the Emoluments Clause, rises front and center. It's probably never been talked about this much in the entire history of the country. And so it says that, that you know, if you're a position of office or profit, which the president and vice president would be, you can't accept a president emolument office or title. So the question is, well, what is that? How does that deal with Trump's businesses? And the answer is an emolument is receiving a payment. And so if you're doing business with a foreign government, the receipt of payment for that is going to be an emolument. That's the, that's just the sheer, the straight definition of it. And then if you look at any kind of case law, past history of cases that have actually been litigated in any kind of fashion, it, there is a record of a 2009 case involving Hillary Clinton as a potential violator of the domestic emoluments clause. That's right. So well, go ahead. I, I bring that up because I do think I do think that there probably is some precedent and, and there is some history of the high courts. I think in the case of, of uh, Hillary Clinton, it related to maybe, I think it was something to do with her State Department involvement in the State Department and perhaps her voting for an increased salary prior to her getting the position. Yeah, and there are a number of those uh, things that it would be, it's, so you're, you're exactly right. What happens in a case like this, where there's never been a Supreme Court ruling on exactly what the Emoluments Clause covers and what counts and what doesn't and how it, how it would be defined, you end up looking at, at similar laws that apply at different things. Uh, for example, in, the, in preparing for this, I looked and I saw there were a number of attorney general opinions. There were some opinions by the Ethics Council for the Department of Defense. I, mean, I saw that. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I found those pretty interesting. So they were applying the same principles to the Emoluments Clause, even though it wasn't to a, a president. And Right. It, and it, then the, the other thing I'd add there is those are advisory opinions, which I think, again, it goes to the issue that you already raised. We're in, it's potentially a novel issue when you apply it to Trump and his family dealings, which I, I think is an, an interesting issue. Yeah, I mean, I th you're exactly right. So we, you, we end up, as lawyers, having to reach into these other areas that we're not used to looking at. And, and it's, on one hand, you think, well, what the heck does a, a, a opinion from the Ethics Council of the Department of Defense have to do with determining whether if Donald Trump has a hotel and a foreign government is renting rooms there is a violation of the Constitution? And I think we're, we're in this amazing, interesting point in time where that's exactly where a court's going to have to look to find some guidance because it's not there in very many cases and it's never yeah, been litigated then, at the highest levels of the federal courts. Yeah, and then the, the, the vast tentacles or reach of Trump's enterprises 
uh, raise concerns simply because of just how how vast and widespread they are, right? Reaching into foreign countries quite a bit, right? That's right. Since this this specifically goes to the question of receiving one of these listed things, in this case, it would be receiving money from a foreign government. So, so the question is, what's a foreign government and what all counts? And, and it does appear that it's not just receiving money from the government themselves, but in many countries, the government, for example, would own the power company. The government might own the airline. The government might own all types of service industries. And they're, they're not privately held as they are in this country. And if those services are being provided to, for example, a hotel that's owned by Mr. Trump, all of a sudden the question gets raised. Is that a violation? So you have a company owned by foreign government so there's no question that it meets that criteria you have a corporation owned by trump they're doing business together by the nature and totally normal business i'm not saying there's anything untoward we're not talking about bribes or anything like that we're just talking about the normal course of business i would have to say it appears that the emoluments clause gets into the Picture. I'm not sure what the outcome would be, but I think all of a sudden this never heard from part of the Constitution comes into the conversation. Yeah, and you know, Mitch, one one thing I I wondered about is, you know, when when we hold that hold that issue, thought. I love it, Andrew. On what you're wondering about, we're going to keep everybody on pins and needles about that. Oh, okay. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. 
Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College of Law, and I'm joined by attorney and law professor Stephen Wagner. And we're currently talking about the little herd of emoluments clause of the United States Constitution that prohibits federal office holders from accepting gifts, remuneration, titles, and things of the sort from foreign governments. And the question that everybody's wondering is, what effect will that have on a president-elect when he becomes president and has a vast, as, as Stephen said, network and tentacles of international business practices? So, all right, Stephen, I, I cut you off right before the break. Yeah. No, so, so Mitch, here's what I was wondering. So this is in the news quite prolifically because the issue of how president-elect Trump is going to potentially divest himself of all of these foreign profit-earning endeavors, and we've heard a lot about his plan to maybe move operations over to his children. Um, that's why it's front and center in the news. But I, I, I was curious about one of the basic issues about suitability to seek office, which is actually why I brought in Hillary Clinton, which I didn't do it for purposes of sort of you know, evening the playing field or leaking my political, you know, allegiances necessarily. It's just that I thought that categorically the public should know about this before an election. You know, I, and, and I was, I made an analogy or what I was about to say is I usually try to find analogies. And, and I thought of uh, the case of a judge sitting in judgment on a case. If there's an appearance of conflict or, or if there is a conflict, a judge would recuse him or herself, right? We both know that. That's exactly right. And there's and there's there are laws and, and even more important, there are ethical rules. So the kind of standards of practice that That's have right. evolved That's right. over so, years and years of what is or isn't appropriate. Yeah, so I was trying to just kind of peel it back a little bit to get a sense and, and quite frankly, I don't mind admitting that I had to go back and almost go to a synonym finder a little bit <laughs> to get definitions of emoluments. Right. Seriously, because, I mean, I, I just want to roll out with some of the synonyms. 
and I hope I'm not alone here in stating that it's it's kind of hard to define. So salary is a synonym, payment is a synonym, earnings, allowance, stipend, honorarium, reward, premium, fee, charge. I mean, it's pretty it's a pretty wide net definition, right? Yeah, and and so you're exactly right. When you have to apply that to how will a president-elect, in this case Trump, deal with creating the arm's length or the distance or the avoidance of a conflict of interest from any of those things that you just listed coming from a foreign government or a foreign-owned government corporation? foreign-owned yeah. government corporation. That's So yeah, that's so, you raised the question of divestiture. Right. I, I, I did that, or just the basic... I'm also thinking, maybe, I'm, maybe this isn't quite on point, but how about uh, President Obama's receiving the Nobel Peace Prize? You know, that question was actually raised. And so they... There is a attorney general's opinion, ethics opinion on that. So that's a great one because because it it comes with the prize and it actually comes with a cash cash stipend as well. It's right, what, a right, million right. two or something like that. It's not just jump change, right? Right. Yeah, and I don't recall what was that. So, so what happens? They, they yeah they looked at it exactly and said it it certainly triggers half of the equation. He's the sitting president of the United States. It's an office of profit or trust. And he's receiving clearly one of the things listed in the emoluments clause, right? Just yeah, and then it, I, I don't know protocol for the, the committee, but that's foreign-based, isn't it, the Nobel Committee? So that is exactly the question. It is yeah, foreign-based, okay. but was it a foreign government? And that's what ah, they had to decide. Okay. That's yeah, and in the case of the Nobel Committee, it was determined that it wasn't a foreign government. It's actually an independent committee that is part of the Nobel, I don't know, it's a foundation or organization that, that does this and creates, takes the vote, selects the people, and that there it was not a foreign-controlled or foreign-owned corporation. And they're not a foreign government. I mean, it's definitely foreign, but it's not a foreign government. So they had to have an opinion that said he was entitled to receive it because it didn't trigger the other half of the emoluments prohibition. So, okay, so I wasn't completely out on a limb. No, no, no. It, okay, it actually good. had to be cited. And, and let me just toss in one other thing that has happened in the history of the United States. It it started early on. I think even George Washington had to have Congress make a decision. There's a small part of that that says, without the consent of Congress. So there have been a number of cases, not a ton of them, but there have been a number of cases in which Congress actually passed a law that said, the president can receive this, or that ambassador can receive this. It's okay. And then you're not in violation of the clause. So, okay. so, so your your points. Let's go back to the divestiture issue because that's clearly going to come up here. That we're we're waiting yeah. to hear what the president elect is going to do. You raised the question of of what are, what role will his children play because he said one of the things he intends to do is just quote just turn over his business interests to his children. And so the question now is raised: is well, what does that mean? And or what does that need to be? in order to not violate this clause of the Constitution. So, 
turning over management or turning over ownership. And in the handful of cases that have been uh, ruled on in the emoluments clause, those are not seen as the same thing. And so for the, for the purpose, as far as we know, and again, we know there's no exact case that's ruled on this, but it appears to say that merely turning over management does not meet the standard because you're still reaping the benefit as the owner. Okay, and so wait a minute. Wait, wait. Let me stop you. So sure. merely, tur- merely turning over management does not uh, obviate or does not uh, mean that you're not subject to the law, to the Correct. emoluments. Okay. That's right. So you're still the owner of the corporation, and you say, well, but day-to-day management, I'm going to turn over to someone else, and then I'm going to tell them, by the way, don't tell me anything about it. But you still get the checks. It still accrues to your benefit. It's still one of those things that you just listed off in the definition of an emolument. And you know you're getting it. You see the value. You see the volume of it, the yeah. amount. Okay. And, and it appears, again, it appears, we don't know for a fact, but it appears that turning over management but not turning over ownership will not be enough. So that becomes a huge issue for someone with truly a global set of businesses. So that's, yeah, that's telling me that a shorthand way of defining that is they look at the books. They follow, they follow the profit chain, right? They do. They, okay. So, so there, so let's go back to the other question you raised, which I think is exactly the right analogy. You talked about the role of a judge and the appearance of conflict of interest. So one of the questions would be, why has this never come up before? Because certainly we yeah. must have had presidents that owned corporations, you know, that had were doing business. So Bush. Bush is one. He had uh, oil and gas interests. He had a baseball mm-hmm. team. Uh, Jimmy Carter had a peanut company. A corporation mm-hmm. did international business. It wasn't just, just in the United States. So, so the answer appears to be that in every single situation up until now, the presidents in question, both parties, have interpreted on their own and taken the steps on their own to actually divest themselves of those corporate interests so as they would not be in violation of the Constitution of the United States. So it has been self-policing efforts. I think that's a good way to put it. They you look at the history. Yeah, I think the, the history of it has been that the individual serving in the presidency made the ethical decision that in order to not give even the appearance of violating the emoluments clause, that they would divest themselves from any of those business interests that gave rise to even the appearance of a conflict of interest or a violation of the Constitution. Yeah. And I, I'm, as I want to do, I look at policy and underpinnings behind everything, and there's an obvious need for, it's a trust position, obviously. There's a need to eliminate undue influence, to eliminate the optics of undue influence. I think you're exactly right. And so the additional question, 
and again, we will see, is that we also have had every single presidential candidate in the last, I think it's what, 40 years, always released their tax returns so that everybody could see where the possible conflicts were and then see that when they took the steps to divest themselves of it, they could connect the dots. It was done mm -hmm. in full transparency of the American public. And therefore, you could just go down the line and go, well, wait a minute, what about that company? And go, okay, it's into a blind trust or I'm divesting myself from it. So with this president-elect, he seems to have set a, a, an even more difficult challenge for himself because we don't have the first half of that equation either. We don't really know what the corporations are in question. And therefore, we're not going to really know what's being divested or whether enough of the things have been divested or put into trusts to, to keep from a violation. So I've, I think we're going to look with great care and listen very carefully to see exactly what is being told and, and what what notices are provided to us. So you're you're predicting, or perhaps not you, but you sense that we will see the books. We will we will need to see the tax returns. I we will well, need I, to see the I think, just my personal thinking, yes. I think that it's one thing to just say, trust me, you know, I got rid of it all. That's not really the way it's been done historically. Uh, but, the, no, wait a minute, even though you said that in the case of past presidents, the self-policing mechanism seemed to have been the norm. I would hope that the norm will happen in this case as well. Okay. That's right, so, I got you. Because we're wrapping up with the last few minutes here. I want to kind of save the drum roll for the very last thing, which is, so what happens if it doesn't happen? What happens if we have a president-elect that says, I'm not doing it? So here's the interesting part that we end on with this whole topic. It doesn't appear that anybody has standing to sue for violation of the Constitution. In this case, it would require a congressional act of impeachment for violation. So yeah, we're, we're not going to see right. lawsuits for violation of this part of the Constitution, or at least we're not going to see lawsuits that will, that will prevail because yeah, yeah. the individuals don't have standing under the Constitution. Yeah, All right. I think that's a fascinating Well, there's, there's our music for the wrap-up. Hopefully we've helped everyone understand a little more about the Constitution. Thank you, Stephen. Great show. Thanks, Mitch. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You can also hear us on voiceamerica.com and wagnerandwinnick.com. As we suggest to you every week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.